Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, can data make better parents? Parenting's a business filled with fraught decisions and a creeping doubt that perhaps you've just made the wrong one. My guest reckons taking a data-driven approach can make raising happy and healthy offspring a lot less stressful. And she's done the number crunching to prove how. Emily Oster is Professor of Economics at Brown University, and her best-selling books urge us to do away with conventional parenting wisdom and instead use more hard information to improve the elusive art of child-rearing. Tens of thousands of her loyal fans subscribe to her newsletter, and it's stuffed with graphs on whether sleep training is worth it and whether babies should eat salt. In her latest book, The Family Firm, she champions running a family like a company with the parents as CEOs. But a new controversy has sharpened the argument about what being a good and responsible parent entails. Last year, when schools in the US shut their doors to coronavirus, she collected evidence on virus transmission among the young and concluded classrooms were safe to reopen. Well, criticism then flooded in from epidemiologists and teaching unions who questioned why an economist should seek to lead that debate. But many parents, perhaps worried about educational forfeits or even keener to get the young out from under their feet, praised her stand. So why did she put herself at the centre of one of the pandemic's fiercest political fights? Emily Oster, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you so much for having me. So your latest book is called The Family Firm. It's a fitting title for a family trade. Both of your parents are economists and both are professors. You're certainly following in the tradition there. Did you think it was inevitable that this was going to be what you ended up doing? I've always been very interested in doing research broadly, not just in economics. And so I think I had always thought that I would end up in a job that involved some kind of research component. I think it took me a, a, a few fits and starts before I decided on on economist. But uh, there are a lot of economist families. So I guess in that sense, maybe it's not so surprising. And we're going to come to what you make of parenting philosophy, both your own experience and what you've been researching and recommending since. But I'm curious, I mean, we do come from The Economist after all here in this conversation. Do you find that your beliefs were forged in the way that your own family worked? Can you run a family on economic lines, by which I don't just mean, obviously, keeping an eye on the shopping bill? I think yes to both things. One of the sort of core ideas in economics is the idea of risk benefit trade offs and of sort of thinking about decisions as almost always having two hands, right? There's this sort of famous joke that the policymaker saying, find me an economist with only one hand because economics is kind of all about we could do this or we could do that. And I think that that philosophy is something that pervaded a lot of choices in my childhood 
that I wouldn't even have identified like that until I looked at them from the outside or until maybe I met my spouse and he was like, you know, that's not how everyone does it. It is a way that I find very helpful. And I think often we're thinking about family decisions. The idea of, of almost being a little bit more businessy, clinical about them can facilitate good decision making. Um, and if you approach it right, can do so without taking away the kind of emotional love component that, of course, you want to have in your family that maybe you don't need to have at your at your job. I read that a conversation which would maybe have occurred in your family that wouldn't occur in lots of others, even if they think that they are interested in or know a bit about economics would be, for instance, if you asked your father to switch to a shorter toll booth lane, he would reply there was no arbitrage condition, which I think as far as I remember, my basic economics is it, it, it assumes that if everybody is trying to optimize all the time, there isn't much potential to improve your position. So we shouldn't switch queues in the supermarket. Am I right? Yes, you are right. That was one of the examples from my childhood. I think another one was that I, I particularly like is, you know, my mother used to have our groceries delivered, which was, of course, now everyone is doing. But when I was a child, which was many years ago, uh, that was a very unusual thing to do. And they convinced the grocery store to, to do it. And I asked, you know, why don't we go grocery shopping like regular people? And she said, well, I have a high opportunity cost of time. Which I remember thinking, oh, yeah, that sounds right. But of course, that's a very odd answer for most parents to give. But in that case, I suppose I'm going to segue in, into your book and the idea of what parenting is and how we look at it through a prism of data. If you talk about optimizing for time, there's lots of things that you wouldn't do around your family, right? You could spend all day doing quite trivial things around your children, for your children, with your children that would be better optimized by someone else doing them. So what's the risk there or what's the reward? In some sense, you could sort of take this to the extreme and you could say, well, are you just saying your time is so valuable that you couldn't do anything with your kid? But I think, of course, that's not true. You know, we often one of the reasons we have kids because we like to we like to spend time with them. But I think there is a sort of underlying principle in the idea of, of valuing your time of identifying what are the things that are most valuable. And, you know, there are some of the things that I do for my kids or with my kids that are, you know, more or less infinitely valuable and that I would definitely not want somebody else to be able to do. And then there are other things where, you know, maybe it's not the most efficient use of of my time and, and it's better to outsource. And I think, you know, in our household, we do spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what are the things that it makes sense to to outsource to somebody else and what are the things that are really things we want to take on ourselves. So that is really what I wanted to know from you is how you started applying data to parenting. You have two children, I think, a girl and a boy. You're starting out, you're making a family. We'll have listeners here who have families, are planning families, don't have families. But all of them will, by definition of grown up, with some sort of a family in the background and be thinking about their own future. So where would you start with data and parenting? What do we need to know? We talk about something like breastfeeding. So I think, you know, this is a question a lot of people have is, you know, what is the value of breastfeeding? There's kind of the traditional, like, I'm going to hear what my mother did or to listen to the doctors who've told me breast is best. That is the kind of question where I think bringing data to the party is really valuable. And so when I, when I was parenting, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, you're told a lot of things about the benefits of breastfeeding, which things are best supported in the data and which things are not. And ultimately there, I came to the conclusion that, you know, there are some small benefits, but in fact, a lot of big benefits that people cite are sort of over are overstated. 
And then, you know, once you have that data, then you can kind of combine it with some preferences. You combine it with some sense of your constraints of, of the values that you have and make a decision that works for you. And I think that in some sense, that idea that data can be an input along with preferences to decisions, which may not be the same for everybody because people's preferences differ. I think that's kind of the key. Parenting is often about dilemmas, isn't it? Sometimes we feel that we made the right call quite a lot of times. I have three children, maybe a little older than yours, a range of, of ages. It, it feels to me a really attractive thought to use more data, but I'm not yet convinced that it's going to make the complex decisions easier. Am I wrong? Think about something like, you know, choosing a school for your kid. You know, you're going to go, you're going to spend a bunch of time collecting data, like what's a good kind of school? How many kids are in a class? What do the test scores look like? Whatever the pieces of data are, you can go read a ton of literature. What do we know about private schools or charter schools or public schools? You can like get everything together. You can be the world's best expert on educational quality and still you may not, you're not going to know when you choose the school for your kid that that was necessarily the right choice. And that's just an inevitable characteristic of parenting, I think that what you can know maybe is that you made the choice in the right way, that you sort of structured your choice in a way that would lead to the best possible ex-ante decision. But that's very different than saying you can be right that it's ex-post. And I think accepting that is part of what's very hard about parenting. If we were to sort of look at the the balance of this and, and where it lands in terms of more philosophically, is there aim to make parenting better, almost a sort of perfectionism about the art and craft and crazy race of <laughs> business of having and bringing up children, raising children? Or is it to make it kind of more relaxed because you'll have done more research? You, you can just say, you know what, I did my best. I think one of the things that actually makes these parts of parenting very difficult is the kind of constant uncertainty and the second guessing of oneself. So I've made some choice about whatever it is, breastfeeding, sleep training, school choice, how much my kids sleep, what they eat, whatever it is. And then if you're constantly revisiting that choice and saying, oh, this other parent said they did it differently. Maybe I did it wrong. That's part of what's very stressful. And so some of the value of structured decision-making or data or having some way to make these choices is to then at the other side of that say, okay, well, now I'm confident that I made this choice in the right way. And it maybe it's not the same choice as other people. And honestly, maybe it's not the right choice, but that the confidence comes from having thought about the choice carefully at the beginning. In your book, Family Firm, you, you tell families to think deliberately about your household and your parenting style. So give us a flavour of what that is in your case. How would you describe your own parenting philosophy? We spend a lot of time as a as a family. We have dinner together at six o'clock. Kids go to bed on the relatively early side. And then my husband and I work more at the at the end of the day. So those big structural pieces are very key for us. And I was struck by the fact that you have recommended thinking about the family unit like a business. And I guess to this extent, it does have uh, stakeholders, if not shareholders, uh, everyone in the, in the family and those who are connected to it. And you advise us to come up with a, a mission statement. And you say parents should start treating children like they're employees. Now, some people might find that quite old. I think I make a joke about treating your kids as employees. Mine are very, very, very difficult employees. I mean, they've certainly... Very difficult. They've got an incredibly strong staff union, I tell you <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But, you know, as you say, you, you were having a bit of it. I should allow for the fact that you were having a bit of a joke, but there's clearly a thought behind it, Emily. So, so just flesh it out. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the idea here is that in some of these parenting decisions we make and things like what kind of out of school activities should kids do, for example, that, you know, we are going to make better decisions on those choices if we structure them. And there is a real role, I think, especially as kids are older, for involving them in those decisions. You don't want to give your kids choices about everything the same way like some employees get more choices than others, but that there are a lot of scenarios in which I think we could give our kids an opportunity to weigh in and to have an ownership stake in some of the choices we make because those choices are for them um, and they're going to influence them as well. But where does that leave that tricky question of discipline and what discipline looks like? And people will have different views of this, depending whether they're listening to this. The show, there are social norms in certain groups, in certain classes, in certain uh, countries, and even within that. Does it make you more likely to be, as you, you described your approach as structured? If I said that, I think my children would think of it as a bit of code for quite stern. And does it make you err towards the side of being quite disciplined. I think like with many things about parenting, we sort of have this idea that you're going to have to be a type. And then in fact, there's a lot more flexibility. We try to be very strict about you have to sit still at, at dinner, but then there, you know, there are some aspects of kind of the way the kids interact with each other where I think we are fairly, fairly lax. So I don't think you have to be really one, one type or the other. You know, when I think about giving kids ownership over these decisions, I actually kind of think of that as fairly separate from discipline. I think that's more about how much responsibility you're going to give them. As you admit in the book, you're from a relatively privileged background, highly educated, professionally successful. A lot of your book does seem to be geared towards that kind of reader, affluent, quite, quite structured in order to be able to succeed so well in your chosen area. And it made me wonder whether the methods translate to lots of families rather than just to some families who are already rather geared that way. I think the core of this book is really about decision making under constraints. And so in, in some sense, if you if you have no constraints, a decision like you know, what school should my kid go to? If you have sort of infinite resources and there are a million different private schools available, that is an easier choice, not an easy choice, but it's an easier choice than if you are faced with a situation where there's a real trade-off between, say, sending one of your kids to a Catholic school versus uh, a public school that that's going to require some trade-offs, some other complicated choices in your, in your household. I think that these decision tools are well suited to both of those situations. And I, I, I bristle a little bit, bristle is maybe the wrong word, but I think that there's a little bit of attention to sort of say, well, choices are only something that you should get to have if you have a lot of resources. No, actually making good decisions, making good choices isn't something that should be only the right of, of people who are privileged. And so I think that that, that idea is something I, I don't agree with. Let's talk about schools, which is really an aspect of your work that's unleashed a lot of rather fierce argument in the US and I think resonates beyond as well. By March the 25th in 2020, all public school buildings in the US closed because of the rising threat uh, of COVID-19. You then wrote an opinion piece arguing they should reopen and you cited one aspect of, of this, an important one, that working parents can't wait around forever, you said. Now, what led you down that route? And then we'll talk a bit more about the, the argument that ensued. As you said, in, in March 2020, all the, the schools in America closed. And I think most of us, and myself included, thought that was the appropriate reaction to the to that current moment. As we got into the to the fall of, of 2020, though, there was a fair amount of disparate reopening across the country. And I, along with a bunch of, of other kind of private actors, 
ended up being in some ways the only people or the most centralized people collecting data on how much COVID there was in schools. I think at that point, we had a sense from a lot of places in Europe that actually many schools had been able to reopen safely without significant COVID spikes in schools. So it was starting to look like maybe that was a that was a possibility. And so we started collecting a bunch of data on that question and sort of thinking about, you know, hey, they're actually big downsides to having schools closed. We want to understand how much COVID there is. We ended up, you know, finding consistent with the European data and all the subsequent data that's come out that schools are actually fairly low risk. And at that point, myself and other people on that team were kind of pushing in the direction of, okay, we really do need to, to reopen schools. But what data were you actually looking at? We had a database of schools that ended up covering several million kids in the US looking at the number of kids enrolled in in-person schooling and then COVID cases in those schools, sort of tracking them over time. We started that effort last summer and then by the, the sort of October period had, you know, I think at least some sense of what was going, what was going on there. And I, and of course, like better data came out over, uh, over time. But, you know, ultimately that was, I think the, the first of, of at least the U.S. data that was kind of reassuring in that sense. A lot of people were concerned at the time about children either in their own right contracting the virus and what the implications of that would be, or indeed bringing it home to older relatives. And so the objection, if I could just sort of phrase it broadly, was you're not an epidemiologist, you're not an expert in education other than the fact that a lot of your work touches on it. And you became a leading figure in this schools debate. So there was a stick to your knitting kind of feeling, wasn't there, in the air? Do you think that was fair? Not not exactly in the sense that, you know, at the time that I was I was kind of writing about the idea that schools should open, I was running the database with the most data on COVID in schools in the U.S. So it wasn't there was a little bit of this feeling of like, well, you're not an epidemiologist. But on the other hand, I'm the person with the most data. And I think you wrote for The Atlantic about a year later in, in early 2021 that the CDC, obviously the you know, the, the body most looked to um, for advice and, and direction on how to deal with a pandemic in the US, had basically led to a situation where kids were taking precautions to protect adults. And you, you questioned this, I think, on the grounds that children were being burdened for the sake of older members of society. Is, is that still your view? There's no question that we undertook some of these school closures and other uh, restrictions on the activities for kids in an effort to protect older people. I think that's completely reasonable. I think we could sort of now think about is particularly school closures do not actually seem to, to protect old people. So those were just things that were bad for kids without actually having any benefit for anybody else. Now, when we sort of think about this next phase, we find ourselves in a, in a situation in which vaccines are available to everybody, including all high-risk adults. Many people have chosen not to, to take those vaccines for various reasons. I do think it's unfortunate to put any further restrictions on kids in, in at least restrictions that would be done in an effort to protect unvaccinated people who could be accessing a vaccine if they chose to. You invited schools and school districts to send you data on infection rates. And it's interesting that that wasn't, I think, being widely collected. What did you learn from it? Because if you look at the protests against it, there were some who just maybe were just uncomfortable with your approach, full stop. There were others who were just queasy and sort of felt you should always prioritise protection. And that this view is perhaps a bit more common among progressive Americans. And you seem to kind of disconcert some people who might otherwise have been a bit more on your side. I mean, I think that there was certainly a, a sense among some people around the idea that if anyone ever got COVID at a school, we should not open schools because that that cost is too large. 
And I think that part of the approach that I, that I took to this was the idea that, you know, there are costs and benefits that we're trading off that it may be the case that a small number of people get COVID at schools. And in fact, it's, you know, of course that's going to, in some sense, be the case. It's an infectious disease, but that, that there are downsides that we would want to weigh against that. And I think that that idea that, that we might engage in that kind of cost benefit weighting, I think that continues to be something that is not something everybody agrees with. And there are certainly still people who have the view that basically we should continue pretty extensive lockdowns and precautions until we get to a point of no COVID. That's a different view than the view I have. So now that we're starting the new school year pretty soon, uh, summer's lease has all too short a date, as Shakespeare uh, put it, and we're all getting back back to schools, uh, both in the UK and the US and in and a lot of other countries in greater numbers. Do you think that we've got the mix right of policy? And if not, where are the points that we should be worried about? The situation in the U.S. is a little complicated. So I think that, you know, most places will go back to in-person school um, during this upcoming school year. I, you know, I'm supportive of that policy. I think that one sort of slightly complicated aspect of it is we still are seeing a fairly low vaccination rate in some parts of the of the U.S. Those parts are also seeing, you know, reasonably high COVID rates. Now, those are mostly places where they had schools open full time in person last year also. So I'm not concerned that they won't open their schools. I think there are open questions about whether we'll see more spread in schools in the Delta variant world, at least in those places with high COVID rates. But I think that the push towards full in-person learning, which is now kind of widely shared across many policy groups, I think that is the right push. But the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, as it's more commonly known, also seems to sort of want this both ways. Individuals should wear masks and practice social distancing is the advice. Is that really practical? I think the CDC has has dialed way down the advice around distancing. And they've been pretty clear that, like, you know, they, that sort of districts should think about a um, uh, collection of efforts and that vaccination is the most important, vaccinating all eligible people is the most important. They would like everybody to mask in, in schools. They'd like to invest in ventilation and so on. And then I think distancing has sort of fallen a little bit down. I think for some of the reasons that you say that anybody who's seen a kindergarten classroom has a hard time probably imagining the idea of distancing with five-year-olds. There are concerns about the longer term impact of, on children and young people, particularly those in more vulnerable groups from social distancing and from being out of education for so long. But of course, we don't have data on this yet. And there is a tendency on this issue. I notice it uh, here in the UK. I'm sure it's not too different in the US. Just sort of double down on one's own view. You know, if you're a very fervent opener-upper, you tend to emphasise that. But we don't really know, do we? We don't know whether children, young people will turn out to perhaps be more resilient than those who are fearful uh, are claiming. What do we know? I think that we are, you know, starting to see some impacts on, on learning loss. I think, you know, those sort of predictably suggest that there have been some pretty significant learning losses over the past year concentrated in groups with fewer resources to, to begin with. But on some of these more nebulous things, like what are the impacts on mental health? We don't know that yet. I think we will start to know that more in the next school year. I think for me, the big open question is simply going to be how many kids have we lost from the school system altogether? And that's something we also won't know until we see enrollments in this upcoming school year. But my my guess is that, you know, particularly in vulnerable communities, we will end up losing a lot of kids who basically drop out of school and will not return. And those losses are very significant because if you don't finish high school, you don't finish high school. That is a real consequence. It's different from the consequence of, you know, you learn less in the in the first grade and you have to make some of that up in the in the second grade, which is also potentially bad. But 
has the ability for catch up. What about the practicalities of home working? We, the economists, but also you have looked into the business of parenting in the pandemic. We thought it might start a better chapter for working parents. As you can see, we have an upbeat side. What do you think? I think that we will see some return to work. Of course, people will not be working remotely from their houses forever. But I do think that there is an opportunity here to provide more flexibility in ways that parents in particular, particularly parents of young children, will want. And I think they will be demanding of that kind of additional flexibility. Pre-pandemic, I wrote about the idea of women demanding the kinds of flexibility that would allow them to, say, see their kids at the end of the day for dinner. I think it will be more difficult for firms to turn down those kind of flexibility requests now that people have shown that you can, you know, in principle, work from work from home. It just makes it much easier to say, hey, you know, I'm going to be I'm going to be offline from five to eight, but then I'll be back online. I think it's harder to say no to that. And do you generally think that the culture will change in a lot of businesses? And obviously businesses are a, there's a rainbow of different approaches and suppressed premises, or perhaps things that businesses don't want to say, like, I only really want people at home some of the time. I don't, you know, but, but I, I run a business, I'm probably... I'm cagey about what, what I may say publicly. And I wonder whether we might end up with a sort of lot of reading between the lines. I think we raised the issue in, in our piece. So could you end up with sort of second employees, what used to be called very unfairly the mummy track, um, who are just not seen as quite as productive, ambitious, all got kind of left out of, of some things. I suppose it depends depends what we make of it. But I wondered about that. Yeah, I think it depends what we make of it also, because I can actually see a, a version of that that's good in the sense that you could say, like, there there may be a place for people to stay in the labor force and step back a little bit during particular times of their life and then be able to lean back in. You know, some of what happens is people just end up completely leaving the labor force, completely quitting their job because they kind of can't take it. And, you know, we say mommy track in a, in a negative way, and I, I wouldn't want to frame it like that, obviously, for many reasons. But I think there is a sort of like, hey, like this next couple of years isn't the time I'm going to be like leaning in as aggressively as possible to my job, but I want to stay where I am. And then, you know, I'm going to have a moment where I can come back in. And I think if we can, if we can scaffold that, I think that would be good. As long as you're not doing three jobs all at once and uh, uh, sorting out your children's PCR tests and looking for their lost holiday equipment <laughs> while someone else is saying, hey, shouldn't you be on the line with Emily Oster? Because that would never happen around here, oh, honestly. I really, I'm not taking the, the lie test on that one. <laughs> Listen, for the past year, you've been to a lot of people, uh, either a hero or so I wouldn't say a villain, but you know you have had a lot of criticism, particularly on social media. Not everybody likes me. Let's just say it; it's true. Yes, you do feel disliked because of your views some of the time, of course. Yeah, and, and, and to be clear, this is about reopening of schools primarily. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think it is so visceral? I think it's in some ways for the same reasons that we have some of these kinds of debates in parenting, which is that, you know, this is a place where there's there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of fear about doing the wrong thing. And, you know, we are very protective, particularly of our of our kids and the idea of sort of stepping back and saying, OK, like, let's weigh the costs and benefits. You know, that that's a very hard thing to hear when you're sort of thinking about. But you know what? Like, I'm afraid. And I think that that colors some of these interactions. And I think the other piece of it, particularly in the school's cases, was I think there was a lot of fear among teachers. Some of the kind of most vitriolic pushback that I got was from teachers, from the teachers' unions in particular. Again, I think a lot of that really does ultimately come down to kind of fear. 
And so would you do anything differently next time you were embarking on something that could be a quite ferocious public argument? Or do, is it a kind of case of suck it up? You know, it's it's social media. Uh, don't don't <laughs> don't go into the don't go into the dark, Ethel. Um, but but that's difficult, isn't it? And it's particularly difficult. And you're, you're uh, a woman and there is often a very sexist uh, undertone. And, and uh, people know this one, you know, whatever group group they're in, that their particular groups can attract really visceral and personal and hurtful comments. The last year has been good for my the thickening of my skin. Maybe I'd read the comments less. And, you know, there are certainly, in, you know, individual things that I wrote where I said, boy, I would have phrased that differently or whatever. I mean, there are uh, small pieces, you know, things, things of that, of that type. You know, I think broadly, I'm proud of a lot of the work that I've done in the last year. And knowing everything I know now, would I have written things differently last summer? Of course. But do I think that ex ante, the things that I, I wrote then were were not the way I should have put them? No. I wondered, as we come to a close, what you would give us as a, a piece of parenting advice. And it can be your own, but I think we'll also allow you to channel the wisdom of, of others which is the one that's you know got got you through those <laughs> the, the dark nights or early evenings or early mornings when you've got a lot to get on with and you have you know either someone screaming on the kitchen floor or, or worse should that ever happen uh, Shay Oster yeah it happens I think the biggest learning piece for me or or his adv- advice in the in this parenting space particularly in the last year is just to not impose your own stuff on your kids control expectations i think there's sometimes a a sense in which particularly when things feel out of control in other parts of our life at least for me i sort of want to put more structure on sort of how i'm thinking about stuff stuff with the kids and i I've, I've tried very hard particularly in the last year to kind of say okay this is kind of not not on you and and i need to let the kids be who they are and be good at the things they're good at and try to deal with my own neuroses on my own. I, I, I like that that idea, having fought the war of the violin practice here for t- 20 years with only a modicum of success. And I like have no one playing by his first violin in the Boston Philharmonic. Thank you so much for joining us, Emily Oster. Thank you so much for having me. And as ever, we would love to know what you think on this one. Do you have parenting advice you would like to share might take us beyond the pandemic too? And what are your concerns as your children go back to school? Would you rather keep them at home longer or get them back to the classroom? Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at economistpods. Don't forget, there's never been a better time to become one of our treasured subscribers. Our data team's been looking at the global vaccination take-up. That's an interesting piece that I would recommend, and you'll find it on our website. And I think I'd also point you to an article about how reconnecting with your childhood can help better understand a new generation of kids on the block. For our best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer today was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. 
Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.